0: 10,
1: 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1 Live from Suffolk, this is The Late Show with Libby Isaac
2: Good evening and welcome to The Late Show It is Tuesday the 23rd of November I am Libby Isaac and Stop the Press I am joined this evening by the one and only Professor Dame Mary Beard. I hope you're sat comfortably for what will be an interesting <laughs> conversation around comics, around Twitter trolls, around women and power and much,
1: much more. Live from Suffolk, this is The Late Show with Libby Isaac on Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio.
2: Good evening, everybody. I hope you've had an absolutely fantastic week, whatever it is you've been doing. Um, the weather in Suffolk today was, was exceptional and um, I had a unbelievably nice walk with my very small two little humans by the sea this afternoon and it definitely pumped me up for this evening um so as i've mentioned in my introduction there um tonight i am hosting a personal heroine of mine professor dame mary beard Uh, a little nerve-wracking for me but what an absolute honor to have mary beard on our teachers talk radio this evening um, and tonight, we're going to be talking classics. We're going to be talking classics at schools. We're going to be talking women in power and whatever direction you would like it to go. Remember, this is a radio live podcast for you. So get your phone messages, start texting in, ring in if you're feeling brave. Remember your, your winner Teachers Talk radio mug. What isn't to love about that on a Tuesday evening? Um because it's not often you get the opportunity to ask Mary Beard live any of your questions. So this is, this is why Teachers Talk Radio is so fantastic. So when I first approached Tom Rogers um, about being a host for the Teachers Talk Radio, in the back of my mind, I always wondered if I'd ever be able and confident enough to get Mary Beard on my show. Um, and obviously tonight is the reality of it. Um, And I wanted to get Mary on as a guest on the Teachers Talk Radio for a number of reasons. Um, So firstly, as I've already alluded to, she's an absolute personal hero of mine, and and she is for many, many, many people out there. Um, Secondly, back in the day when I was a university student, I studied ancient history at the University of Wales, Swansea, um, and I was absorbed in her work. And more recently so, in her books like Women and Power that we're going to be discussing this evening. Um, But also, Mary is completely so approachable and absolutely was so willing to come on the Teachers Talk Radio, which really resonates with me. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago when interviewing Ben Walsh, um, that he told me early on in my career as a history teacher to get historians into schools, let the students meet them, remind the students historians are not stuffed in the back of museums, this way it helps them understand that interpretations that they have to study um, are Real opinions by real people. It helps to unlock that sense of reality for them. So, after I, I had that sort of inset with Ben Walsh, I, I approached Mary Beard to come into our school, and she absolutely said yes. I mean, we had um, COVID and we had diary clashes, but the fact that Mary just completely, without even any thought, said, yeah, I'll do that as long as it matches, um, you know, we can fit it in the diary. That's absolutely something I want to do. So it's just complete credit and testament to the type of individual she is. What I'm going to do, I'm going to stop my rambling and I'm going to play the news. And when we come back from the news, I believe Mary is on the line love how incredibly freshly organised we are Um, and we're going to introduce Mary to the show. Um, Let's just hear from the news first.
1: This is Teachers Talk Radio and this is Teachers Talk Radio News.
3: This is your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glen. For the second year in a row, Christmas lunches and concerts and schools have been cancelled in Wales and Scotland. As the UK's Covid infection rates continue to rise, it is feared that schools in England and Northern Ireland will face a similar situation. Scottish councils are following local advice and advising schools to opt for virtual concerts instead. A spokesperson for Highland Council said, The Highland Council recognises the positive impact that concerts and other events have on the wider health and development of children. However COVID-19 remains present in our schools and communities and therefore Highland schools have been advised that large events beyond a class should not take place indoors or for a live audience. The chairman of Kent Association of Head Teachers, Alan Brooks, has highlighted a shortage of teaching assistants across the county. He said, It is becoming increasingly difficult to recruit teaching assistants and support our staff within schools. One of the things schools used to achieve was to offer flexibility in terms of holiday compared to other employers. However, a lot of other companies are offering flexible hours during the pandemic like supermarkets, which means there is more competition. Money is an obstacle in terms of taking jobs. Local authorities and schools are not blind to that. It's hard to see how we can do a huge amount in terms of salary increase without more help. Becoming a teaching assistant is a worthwhile job. Working with young people, you can see what you are doing is helpful and relevant most often helping the most vulnerable students grow, which is tremendously satisfying. This has been your daily education news briefing.
2: Fantastic. Always amazing news there from our news team. Now, without further ado, and to stop my rambling, um, I'm going to introduce to us this evening um, Dame Professor Mary Beard. Mary, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Absolutely.
0: Uh, Great. (laughs) Great.
2: It's always always quite nerve-wracking when it's a live technology isn't
0: it yes yeah, so you think oh help what will I do if the machine doesn't work but still I can hear you and you can hear me that's great
2: it's absolutely and also we were it was fine we could have had numbers we could have done some fancy thing with a phone everything will always be okay but it's it's uh it's definitely a scary thing I I I remember my very first show and the feeling when your technology doesn't work you're like oh <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Well, um, thank you so much for giving up your evening. I know how busy evenings are for you.
0: It's, it's really great to be, to be with you. I was very pleased that you asked me, and so I'm uh, looking forward to it.
2: <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I'm going to start um, with some questions. And as I sort of explained, um, obviously, we're a live show, so we might get some callers in and we'll take their calls and we'll see what they've got to say. And people might text in their questions as well. So we're just going to kind of go with it. Super. As, mu- Super. as much as we can. Yeah. Super. Okay, Super. so the first thing is to just to get a real brief introduction from you, a bit of background, um, I'm sure people know, um, but what you're doing now for our listeners. That would be great.
0: Yeah, well, you know, in some ways it's a very kind of, um, academic career that I've had. Um, you know, I came from rural Shropshire. My mum was a primary school teacher, head of a primary school. Brilliant. Uh, and my dad was an architect. Mm-hmm. And I was a kind of clever little SWAT girl. Um, mm-hmm. And I worked very hard. Uh, I also, you know, I did a bit of, you know, what we shouldn't call sex, drugs and rock and roll, you know, and I did a bit of that. But I was still kind of pretty keen on... Um, on, on doing well at school. Yeah. And I did. Um, and I went to Cambridge and I studied classics. And then I did a PhD, extremely boring PhD, I have to say, on <laughs> Roman religion. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't boring at the time. I look back to it and I kind of sink through the floor. Um And I then was really lucky. I mean, I've had such a damn lucky career. I got a job teaching for a bit in the University of London. And I have to say, this is kind of embarrassing, that I then got a job back in the university in Cambridge, where I'd studied, in 1984, and I have been there ever since. And, ah. I'm, and I'm retiring at the end of this year you know.
2: Oh, and congratulations.
0: Yes I'm quite looking forward to it actually and, um, uh, and I've taught students Latin and Greek and ancient history and I've written about it but I suppose increasingly I've got very interested in communicating to a wider audience and yeah. that's partly why I've you know, I, you know, I was lucky that I was asked to do some telly, and I've done some radio, and I've written for a general audience, and sort of always seemed to me terribly important that that you wanted to have um, that sense of engagement with a wider community going hand in hand uh, with engaging with university undergraduates, um, and I've been, you know, happily I've been able to do that, and I've had know fantastic opportunities to um make programs to write books um and you know to you know, explore what what you know how you can make greeks and romans interesting because they are interesting if you have to put a bit of effort into it
2: absolutely um,
0: and i've had a ch- you know i've had a chance to do that and you know i you know i, I look back at what i've Uh, The opportunities that have been given to me, and I think, look, my mum came from a family, it was before, you know, university grants, I know we're now after university grants, you know, her parents couldn't afford to send her to university um and she could then do two years teacher training and she did that and she taught you know she was very successful um eventually as head of a big primary school um she would have loved to have gone to university you know that's you know the one thing that you know she she really missed she you know if she were still alive she'd be over 100 um so it was a long time ago um but you know, I feel I feel terribly privileged, you know, because you know, I've been able to do all those kind of things my mum couldn't, you know, and that really is privilege, you know. Yeah. And, and progress.
2: Mm-hmm. It yeah, and I think I think we're gonna unpick that a little bit as well further down, because I I feel privileged because I've been able to do things that my mum wasn't able to yeah. do because obviously she, she actually physically had to stop her career um, at, at the time because she had children. So, yeah. um, you know, that we have moved on, but I do think that there are still some barriers to unpick, which would be great, great to talk They're about. There really are, there well. really yeah. are, you know. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so I suppose my next question to you is what was your or the initial spark that made you want to go into your field?
0: <laughs> well, I've got a story about that. And it is a it's a true story. Obviously, it's kind of, you know, I've, I've, I've sort of mythicized it a bit. But I remember very, very vividly uh, when I was five uh, and we lived, uh, as I said, we lived in Shropshire and mm-hmm. I'd never been to London. And my mum said, you know, you're five, we're going to go see the capital city. Uh, so we w- went to London and um, she, was, she was quite a, 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 you know, she was a teacher. And she took me, amongst other things, to the British Museum.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I was dead keen, like little kids are, on uh, the Egyptians. And uh, I was not just keen on the mummies, I was partly keen on them, but I was really keen on kind of everyday life amongst the ancient Egyptians. And I remember we went to this gallery and, you know, back in the day, this was 1960, museums were not child-friendly. All the cases were high. Um, And I remember that there was – my mum had spotted that at the back of a case – in the Egyptian daily life section, there was a piece of Egyptian cake which had somehow been carbonized, and it was three thousand years old. And you know, if you're a kid, my goodness, you want to see a piece of three thousand year old cake, don't you? And my mum was kind of lifting me up, but she got bags, and it. it was you know, I was quite big. I was five. It was a bit inconvenient. And a bloke walked past, an old bloke, and he said, "Are you looking at you? Do you want to see something?" And I said, I wanted to look at that piece of cake. And he got some keys out of his pocket. He opened the case and he brought the cake out for me and put it under my nose. And that was a kind of turning point, you know. It was not a turning point just because uh, it was so interesting, which it was. You know, How could you not? How could you not be interested in cake? Cake that that was that, was that old, but also it was that kindness that mm. you know the idea that someone would open a case for you that was locked in a museum, and you know I, I now see how jolly lucky I was, but it was sort of a metaphor in a way. I kind of thought you know it's it's a moment that stuck with me, and sort of made me thought that, you know, I want I want to open cases for other people, like that bloke did for me. I never knew who he was. He must be dead by now. Um, but it's, it's stuck with me, you know, for the last 62 years.
2: <laughs> it's, it's, it's a wonderful story. And and uh, Harry's just texted it actually and said, "I'd I'd even eat cake if it was three thousand years
0: old." <laughs> I, I'm not certain. I I I've, I've now have, you know. I told that story in the British Museum, and they kind of tried to identify which bit of cake. Okay, is the it cake was. still there? Yes, well I think so. They've got actually they've got various bits of very ancient cake, they but know, it Harry, must be must be one of these bits. I, I, you would not want to eat it. Let me tell you, you would not. <laughs> no, I'm sure
2: uh <laughs> um, but no it's a, it's it's such a good story as well because it obviously stuck with you throughout the whole of your professional career um and it's so nice to have to have a passion at such a young age and then to be able to live your your passion out throughout the rest of your life and i think that's quite rare in nowadays
0: yeah. yeah no and I, and you know I, I can see that I'm I, I've been I've been hugely lucky I've done other things you know let's be let's yeah. be honest enough <laughs> I've not spent my whole <laughs> life in a library um you know I've done you know other things good and naughty but um it's it it it's a kind of that was a moment which in retrospect sort of made you know it was very very moving to me As a kid.
2: Fabulous. Harry's just said, uh, they'd better not open the case with me around. But what an (laughs) excellent story. Um, (laughs) um, So I suppose my next question to you is, um, I don't know if you heard in the introduction, but I studied ancient history at the University of Wales. (laughs) Um, And I think when I arrived at my university course, in some of those sessions, when we were reading the Iliad and the Odyssey, I did have a bit of a feeling of imposter syndrome because I only studied modern history at my school. Um, and I remember really, really well that m- one of my really good friends um, who used to sit next to me in those classes, she'd be laughing at things that I just completely didn't understand because she was reading the Latin and, and I <laughs> yeah. couldn't translate the Latin. And she used to say how, how rude certain bits were or how you know naughty they were and try and explain it to me, but it was really difficult because obviously it was completely lost in translation. <laughs> Um, but aside from all of that, even though I didn't study ancient history and classics at my secondary school in my sixth form, I absolutely knew at the age of 18 that yeah, I, yeah. I wanted to study the classical world because yeah. I knew it contributed to our understanding of our culture. So can you talk us through this in a little bit more detail for the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, just
0: thinking about your experience, Libby, I think that, um, I think everybody has a bit of imposter syndrome. So,
2: I'm as, sure you, know, do, yeah. you know, and,
0: and I think if you didn't have imposter syndrome, we might sort of worry about you a bit, you know, because, you know, in, in a way it's, you know, as long as as long as long you got it under control, it's a sort of way of showing that you realise there's a lot you don't know. Yeah. Um, I think that... I, Looking at how you, how we now, um, teach the ancient world to, to students. Of course, you know, we use loads of translations. I mean, the idea that somehow everybody reads what the Romans wrote in Latin, you know, I do sometimes. Sometimes I use the translation. But I think that universities have got much better at saying, look, um, back in the day, back in my day, if you wanted to go to university to do uh, ancient history or classics, you had to know Latin and Greek already, right? Or you tended to get left behind. Um, Now, there's not a university in the country who won't teach you from scratch at university. And we've got a really successful course at Cambridge. And people often think, oh, Cambridge, you're bound to have to know Latin before you go there. Well, no, you don't. We'll, we will teach you from scratch, even if you know nothing. So I think that there's been a huge opening up of um, a sense that we can share the ancient world. It's not just for kids who've been able to learn Latin and Greek at school. You know, it, we will teach you and sometimes you know more about other things. If you've Mm. not done Latin and Greek at school. I don't know how
2: much I knew, but
0: yeah. (laughs) You know, you do. And, um, you know, I think when I look back to um, what I did at school, you know, for my in my sixth form, I just did um, Latin, Greek and ancient history. And I did a bit of Italian extra on the side. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, in some ways it taught me a lot. But is that what you'd want a sixth former to do? Yeah. Latin, Greek, and ancient history, and really nothing more. Uh, and so I think that you know classicists are always lamenting, and sometimes rightly, um, that um, you know, their subject is under threat and attack. And I, you know, and I, I, I'm very good at lamenting that. <laughs> but I, but I think also we're. Um, there is a sense in which people still are interested in the ancient world and there are still ways that you can do it and you don't have to have gone to a posh school to do it Uh, and in some ways we teach it much better than we did when I was a student Um, so I think that you know I, I could do the pessimistic line, but the optimistic line is that this is a subject that really interests people. you can come into it at any point. And it's opened up tremendously from um, when I learned it at university. And, you know, so I think that' there's, you know there's a lot going for, for doing classical studies or classics at university. And you know in, in some ways, not you know, I think all humanities at the moment are a bit under threat, you know, and I think, you know mm. I don't want to be too kind of don't want to give too rosy a picture. But I think that um, you know, in some ways we've got we've got something really good to offer and we've got students who are very keen and they're increasingly coming from uh you know, what yeah wider and more diverse backgrounds you know?
2: absolutely um, so would you would you like to see more classics on the curriculum in a secondary school mm.
0: yeah yeah of course I would I'd like it to be um, available uh, you know I'm, I'm not a kind of um, <laughs> A classical Stalinist, you know, there are people out in there who kind of say, everybody should learn Latin. Well, you know, no, I don't think that's the case. Um, What I would like is that um, Latin and classical studies should be available to people because, you know, in a way, as you were saying in part of your introduction, um, studying the ancient world is not about burying your head in the past. You know, it's not about kind of not looking at the modern world. Studying the ancient world uh, ha- helps you understand the present as much as it helps you understand the past. And I, you know, I've had, you know, I've had enormous kind of um, fun wouldn't be the right word for this, but it's been. Enormously interesting to, for example, um, talk through issues about ancient Greek and Roman slavery to people who are working on uh, slavery in the modern world. You know, yeah. And you can you can use the classics as a way, and the problems that the Romans had, and the way they talked about it. You can use that as a way to open up debates for us. About what we think is important, you know whether that's slavery or race or empire or things like theater and tragedy you know it's 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 for me it's a kind of it's a mind opening subject mm. uh which you know i would i I would love more people to get the opportunity to do
2: absolutely and I think primary schools are are really um, getting it getting it right actually like I've I've worked with some primary schools recently on their humanities curriculums um, and I've been lucky enough to work with Steve Mastin who obviously works yeah. really closely yes, with yes. Christine Council. Um, and they're, they're really, they're really like setting students up from a real young age to yeah. completely explore the classical world. That's, and then you know, sometimes it stops in a secondary school. That's, that's, I mean, I think our problem is that, that there are really exciting initiatives
0: in primary schools. Yeah. And when you get to university level, there's really exciting initiatives there too. Uh, what we need to do is make sure that it doesn't get lost uh, in secondary schools. Uh, that seems to me the kind of you know to be the big issue, really.
2: I think I think it's getting it's getting better. Um, yeah. I think people people, especially now, um, offsted, we have to have deep dives and subjects, and it's it's all about the curriculum. And I think people have really had the opportunity to really delve into their curriculum and do exactly what you were saying about diversity and you know absorbing all those types of things and not just being linear with the topics That's, they study. Yeah, and you know I
0: think in many ways. I mean, you know, you know, this sounds a bit sort of, um, uh, uh, you know, people would. Some people say this sounds very woke, but I'm going to say it anyway.
2: Um, It's on the news recently, isn't it?
0: (laughs) I think that, you know, um, classics is quite a good safe space. You know, I think it's a a good place. Apart from, you know. Apart from all the amazing literature that you can read, you know, you can really, you know, you can really look at works of literature and read works of literature that have been important in Europe for two thousand years. But I think also it's a kind of good space for thinking about some of our issues in, in a way that's kind of removed enough. I think it's 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 much easier. Uh, you know, to talk, if I think about my, my student, my undergraduate students, it's much easier to have a good discussion about the nature of slavery or the nature of racial politics through the ancient world because nobody's actually implicated in that. You know, you can, you can look at a subject and people speak much more freely. Um, there is, you know, there's a huge kind of backlog of debt that we have intellectually and politically to the classical world, but somehow um, you, can, you can let it rip when you're talking about the Romans. You know, they're 2000 years old and they don't exist. Uh, and none of, none of, none of us <coughs> are their descendants. <coughs> and you can, you can use it um, very productively.
2: I suppose Please you're not do. going to offend them, are we? You're not going to Here. offend them. Yeah. you know? <laughs>
0: you're not, you know, you, I mean, I think one of the, the best discussions I've ever had is about, um, with students is about the persecution of the Christians. Now, you know, that included, uh, students, you know, who, who were you know, of Christian faith, but you can, it's, you can look at it at a distance and, I mean, you can can explore issues and you can push at issues when we're talking about it all that time ago that you would find very difficult to do about those sort of issues now.
2: Absolutely. And we've had a few texts in from um, some people. So Emma, Emma Williams, who's also a TT host, um, I've taught Latin in the state sector for 21 years. um, And and she agrees with what you said. So every child should be gifted with the opportunity to study Latin. Um, Yes, you can start at university, but it's bloody hard. Yes, it is. Yes, (laughs) it is. Our our students do
0: damn well, I have to say. They do damn well, but it is, you know, it's it's tough. It's tough. If if you don't have anything before,
2: yeah, absolutely. Um, and then Sobia says, and she's also a TT Radio host. Uh, there's definitely more support out there now for state school students, um, and I think we, we we were saying that. And then she said, would be interesting to find out uptake from students from diverse backgrounds. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. All I can say about that is, you know, I, I think one can find some some solid data on that. And but I'm just going to talk. Um, you know from my own experience, and uh, when, when I was a student, um, doing classics at Cambridge was not entirely because I didn't fit into this, but, but the majority of students were posh white and male.
3: Right?
0: Mm-hmm. They weren't all that, but um, that was you get you go into the classics library, and that's what you'd think. And, uh, we've still got a long way to go, you know, and universities like Cambridge have still got a long way to go with things, with issues like diversity. But you, it doesn't look like that anymore, you know? You go into the library, they're not all white faces, you know? They're not all, you know, posh white men. Um, and the, the feeling that you have is that, you know, we we are moving really in the right direction. As I say, I, you know, I don't think that you could stand up and say that, um, you know, we still had an, a, a fair representation of every social and ethnic group in the country. I, I, you know, I don't want to claim that, but it's so different from what it was thirty or forty years ago. Absolutely. So, yeah. And, you know, and that's great. You know, you get, you know, it's not just that that is a sort of socially right thing to do, though it, it clearly is a socially right thing to do. But it also, I mean, it's also, it, it's good for the subject, you know, <laughs> having different perspectives, having kids from different backgrounds, talking in different ways about how they engage with the ancient world. That really pushes the subject on, you know. So it's, it's. You know, it, it is about natural justice that, you know, we shouldn't have prestige subjects which are kind of are restricted to particular narrow groups, but also the subject gains hugely from that. You know, it's, you know, it's much more fun to teach. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure teachers know this, you know. I, I don't mean to teach granny to suck eggs, but, you know, <laughs> it's more fun to teach a diverse group than yeah. a non-diverse group. Just, it's more interesting
2: your audience you get a lot more out of your audience if you're yeah. coming from different backgrounds yeah, yeah. yeah. um so Tom Rogers just texted in and he's um, he's actually our director of the teachers talk radio and he says Mary first of all you are brill um oh. second do you think that it is of more value to the high school student to be doing practical apprenticeships from 11 to 16 instead of classics <laughs> one argument being there's a limited curriculum space to accommodate everything hmm.
0: Well, I think it's very difficult. And that's, um, you know, that's why I'm always very hesitant about saying, oh, I think every, you know, I think everybody should be made to do classics. Um, I don't think that I, I, I would like to give everybody an opportunity. I mean, I think what the sort of the wider point, though, and this is, uh, this is my answer to that question. I hope it doesn't sound as if I'm trying to escape it. I mean, I think the problem about education is that um, there are more things that we want to teach kids than that we can possibly fit into a timetable. And, uh, and you know, part of the argument is it always comes down to al- almost... Almost everything that people want to teach it seems to me is valuable to teach and learn,
3: mm. and
0: the question is how we prioritize it, and, and you know that's the difficulty. You know, you know when it and so what do you do when it comes comes to be a clash between um, uh, apprenticeship type training or studying Greek tragedy? <laughs> right <laughs> how do we make our mind up now I mean, it, it seems to me that um, you know i'm you know i'm the kind of girl who thinks look actually we need more money in the system basically we ju- you know we need more resource uh, we need more opportunities we need need more kind of diverse opportunities in terms of subjects and themes and different types of skills and you can't do that on the cheap you know? No, and I, I think, I'm,
2: sat, I'm sat here nodding my head like one of those you know? nodding dogs yeah
0: you know governments always kind of seem to think that what they want to do is get high quality education on the cheap and I don't think that's possible
2: um, and just said one could also argue it's completely pointless most kids studying trigonometry or algebra but nobody suggests taking maths off the curriculum <laughs> no, no and i think you know you want to say and
0: i think that i think that covid has been quite interesting here you know it's been tragic but interesting because you say well what do we need for a society to kind of recover what do we need Well, you know, of course we need science. You know, no one's going to say that, you know, it wasn't worthwhile having people who could develop a vaccine. Of course it was. But if you think about what society needs, it also needs people who can think through what we've been through, who kind of can understand the history of this kind of pandemic, who can look at the way um, uh, we respond as human beings, to that kind of thing, and I often tell, remind my students they know it already, that if you go to Homer's Iliad, the first work of Western literature, I mean, not just to survive, probably the first work of Western literature there was ever. You know, how does it start? It Starts with a pandemic. You know, uh, Western literature is born in plague um, and pandemic, and we need. As a, as a culture and a society we need to th- be able to think through that as well as to do the hard science they're not alternatives we need both
2: um, emma is it? i think every kid should study trigonometry and algebra <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant thank you so much for for you texting it it's making it's making it really great um so i suppose my my next question is where or what would your own vision for humanities within a, within a school be? And I suppose for this, as, as a history teacher, we need to highlight to our students um, what, can, what can be done with history uh, history qualification or a degree, so job opportunities. And sometimes I think there's more emphasis put on the science and the STEM subjects. So yeah. how can we help the students yeah. to enjoy history yeah. if they've got the
0: passion? Yeah, well, I think there's, there's, there's all kinds of different, ways of doing that. And I I mean, I'm obviously particularly interested in, um, uh, uh, though this seems rather mechanistic, but as you kind of suggest, thinking about what what careers are open to you, because, you know, it's, it's, there is no doubt that um, that both uh, students and their parents, you know, who are thinking about going to university and um, accruing a large amount of debt, or, or rightly and understandably saying, Well, okay, so if I do history or classics or English literature, what kind of job am I going to get? You know, and you know, I'm, I'm very you know, I'm, I'm very hostile to governments assessing uh, different subjects according to their earning power, mm. but I also see that, uh, that a student coming, um, you know, age 17 and thinking about what subject to do might be nervous about doing classics or a humanities subject, because they might think, look, there's, there isn't a, th- there's no career path there. Now, I think actually, happily, that is just wrong. I mean, we haven't been very good at getting that over, um, but I've been doing a few events recently with some of the alumni from uh, from Classics in Cambridge, and they are bursting to tell students coming up or thinking of doing Classics, you know, that you can do everything with a humanities degree. You know, we're not any longer in a world where um, – Where you get on a single track and uh, some of the the people that we've been uh, uh, talking to in in terms of kind of getting alumni experiences, they've been doing everything from... journalism to finance to law some of them have gone into medicine because that's easily possible if you want mm-hmm. to um they've been in education they've been in museums um they've been running companies they've been entrepreneurs <laughs> you know, they've, the range of stuff that you can do after humanities degree is um you know it, 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 the world's the world's your oyster if you work hard at it and you're determined.
2: Absolutely.
0: And I, and I think that you know it isn't the case that you can only get a good job if you do a subject that has got um, vocational training written on it. That is that is simply not the case.
2: and um, Sylvia so said, is there any funding for support for those from low income backgrounds?
0: Yes, in Cambridge there is. Um, and um we have a, a bursary an automatic you don't have to apply there's an automatic bursary scheme um uh which helps people on low income and one of the things that my uh, my own department is trying to do is to add to that um because i think absolutely reasonably people are worried about debt mm. uh, you know and uh, you know it's it's only it's only the very it's only the rich that don't worry about debt everybody else does and um we are 100% committed to getting people to do i'm talking for classics but the same would go for other humanities subjects um to trying to mitigate the debt you know we we can't we can't abolish the debt um but we can mitigate it and, and offer support. And that's, that's what we do. And um, as I say, the university has, a, has an absolutely automatic um, bursary scheme. It's not, you don't have to apply for it um, if you are from a, a, a low-income household, which I think is now currently um, something under 60,000, quite how it's calculated I think is a complicated uh, and technical thing. Don't ask me. Um, but w- we're increasing the, um, the amount of money paid to more people and because the, we don't want to put people off. We don't want to no. put bright kids off. It's not in anybody's interest. It's not in the kids' interest. It's not in our interest.
2: Fantastic. Um, I'm going to play an advert, so please, please, please grab yourself a, a glass of water. Um, the advert's only a minute, so all right. <laughs> uh, so, so you have a, a sip of water, and then when we come back, I'm just going to uh, we're going to talk about your book, Women in Power. If that's okay. Oh yeah, super, super, Brilliant. super. Okay.
1: Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programs to help you? Read Write Inc. Phonics, Floppies Phonics visit OxfordPrimary.com forward slash phonics.
2: Fantastic. Um, and if you have just joined us this evening, um, if you if you've missed anything, then definitely catch up. Um, I've got the absolute pleasure to be hosting uh, Professor Day, Mary Beard this evening. And we've been having a fantastic chat about classics and curriculum and its place within, within a secondary school. Um, so hello, Mary. I said it was quick. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hello. <laughs> nice to be back. That's Fantastic. <laughs> It's uh, you know it's really great to talk because you know I, th- I think um, it's uh, we probably don't talk enough you know across the divide sometimes between universities schools whether you know high schools or primary schools mm. and I think that you know actually um, uh, universities are, have a hell of a lot to learn from talking to teachers I mean uh just last week I, I went to a uh a, a, a school in London and spent the morning um looking around they they're a school that did Latin um but it was you know I, I thought I am learning about how education happens here you <laughs> know I'm not I'm not teaching it I'm learning so,
2: yeah so it's nice um, to um, talk um, to we- you we've been talking about that quite a lot on the shows that we need to we need to you know stop the divide between primary and secondary and merge it yeah. and that goes without yeah. saying to so then obviously higher education yes. as well um because it just makes complete sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, you know. I suppose uh, in, in your book, Women in Power, fantastic book, um, you talk about why society has a problem with female voices <laughs> and female authority. Now, for female teachers, this is really such an important topic. Yeah, um, yeah. And I suppose how many times have we, and I've been asked to do this personally, or advised to lower our voices it's to little, assert mm, our authority? Mm, and that's yeah. within the classroom and within yeah. the corridor yeah. um, so it'd be really great to hear sort of some ideas around
0: this yeah well i, I was really uh, um, amazed about some of the things i discovered when i was writing women in mm. power i mean it was you know I, it came out of two lectures that i did um uh, uh, when i'd just been asked to talk talk about that subject about the voice of women and and how women adopted mediated or uh, were denied power and it, i you know i i was kind of equipped with you know little anecdotal bits of knowledge about some of this you know and i'd read quite a lot about uh, margaret thatcher and how when she was kind of working her way up the uh, the uh the hierarchy of the Tory party you know she was she was sent off to voice training lessons in order to speak lower <laughs> and it was when I was kind of working on um well just trying to think through that kind of thing that I realized that it wasn't just Margaret Thatcher who's been told to do that uh, i I had emails from people who'd been on leadership courses, from teachers saying that is – we are taught to speak like men and we're told if you want people to listen to you, you have to lower your voice. Hmm. And I mean, and I felt very ambivalent about this because I I think as of now – that's probably true, actually. I mean, I can, I can see why people get advised to do that. But I think, why should you? You know, what what is it that means that a woman sounding like a woman doesn't sound authoritative? And where does it go back to? Well, you know, I'm afraid it goes back to the, you know, as far in Western culture as we can possibly see, you know, that, that women are silenced, women's voices are, are thought of as, oh, you know, you get Greeks and Romans talking them about them being like, oh, the yapping of dogs or the mooing of cows, right? No, they seem to be um, not worth listening to. And my question really was, you know how do we change that? You know, you know, I you know I can see why um, someone would say, well, the the instant fix is to speak lower. But why should women speak like a man in order to get noticed? And you know, I, I mean, I don't know how optimistic I feel or not. I mean, you know, I, I think what what really struck me when I was writing the book was you know, how. How naive I'd once been, you know. I used, I mean, I think I used to think when I was well, when I was a student, you know, protesting student, I used to think that somehow all that was needed to get a, women's equality with men was, you know, some. Practical things being done, you know, you needed better maternity uh, provision, mm-hmm. you needed workplace nurseries, you needed family friendly hours and all that. And of course, those are all important. I'm not in any way saying they're not. But some of those things, not all of them, have been achieved. And you see that it, that's not the only thing that's at stake here, that we're kind of dealing with a culture that for as long as it's been a culture, has seen and represented and thought of women as being um, well, I'm going to put this a bit too extremely, and I don't quite mean this, but you know, n- not authoritative, not worth not worth listening to. And I think that I start the book with a, uh, which I think a very nice cartoon um, where there's a load of men round the table, a bloke who's in the chair. It's obviously a meeting and there's one woman. And uh, the chair is saying to the woman, that's a very good suggestion, Miss Triggs. Would one of the men like to make it now? <laughs> And what I think is amazing about that is that I've not spoken ever to any woman, whether they've been um, you know, teachers, um, in a medical profession, shop workers, university employees, uh, journalists. I've not spoken to a single woman who doesn't recognize that. Mm. In all the very different ways their professions are organized, they, they still have that very strong sense that the, the men's voices are taken more seriously. Uh, and I think women also, I mean, you know, I'm going to plead guilty here. Sometimes I take women, uh, men's voices more seriously. I mean, I remember, I feel very embarrassed about this and I'm going to confess it. Um, about 15, 20 years, um, uh, ago, I was on a plane and um, the, uh, you know, the kind of moment when the the captain says, um, you know, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be <laughs> flying at 35,000 feet or whatever, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I was on this plane and the, that notice came on and it was a woman. And for a split second, I thought, why is one of the cabin crew giving this notice? And I thought, oh no, the woman's the pilot, right? <laughs> this is what I wanted, you know. Really? I, you know I want women. You know, I caught myself out being implicated in those prejudices.
2: Yeah. I suppose what, what would your advice be to a, to a teacher or we have early careers teachers so right at the beginning and if somebody says to them, no, no, lower your voice, lower your voice um, for authority more like a man?
0: I, I would hope they could resist that a bit. I mean, I think that, that for me, because you know, look, let's be honest, um, uh, you know, right now, nobody could say that I didn't have a voice. You know, I've, I've, you know and if I get up and I say women, women don't have a voice. People will say, Okay, you, Mary Beard, saying women don't have a voice. You know, <laughs> that's, that's a bit the rich. next book, yeah. You know, that's a bit rich. Um, but I certainly went through years at the beginning of my career where I didn't speak in meetings, I didn't speak in seminars. I had things to say, but somehow it was, it, it was just impossible in a very male environment. It was very, very hard, and I found it impossible to get a word in edgeways, you know, to actually find out how to speak in that environment. And I I don't know exactly what changed it. I don't know exactly what it was. But I think it was partly actually when I stopped pretending to be a man, you know, when actually I started thinking that I was going to speak as me. Not pretending to be one of them—that the difference was, and uh, you know—I think in the end, if if you force yourself into the position of ultimately being an actor, you know, of pretending that your voice is something it isn't, you you just feel like an actor. You feel like you're play acting, and I mean. I, Now, I mean, you know, know, sometimes I think I say stupid things. You know, sometimes I'm not pleased with what I've said, or I don't think I've given a good lecture, or whatever. You know, it's in no way is this a recipe for perfect success. But the the turning point for me was to think that that when I heard myself speak, it really was me, right, and. I don't think you, you, in the end, get there by just lowering your voice. I mean, I think there is a quick fix element to that. And I think Thatcher showed that, actually. Um, but in the end, if you can't be you, you'll, you're, you're just committed to mouthing someone else's lines or mm-hmm. speaking like someone you're not. And that isn't any way of getting power, No. That sort of pretense. So have the courage to be and speak as you and find a voice that sounds like you want to sound like you. what my advice
2: would be. That's a really, really good answer. Thank you. Um, I don't know if you already touched on this a little bit, but at a time in life when society can demand a woman um, to become invisible and or conform to a certain stereotype, um, how's it been for you to, to become even more prominent within within your role? I think
0: that in some ways, I feel very, very pleased that I didn't become prominent until I was in my fifties, honestly. Mm. Um, Partly because by the time I was putting myself about, particularly on telly, um, I I did have a thicker skin. You know, I think if people had said about me, some of the things they said about me in my fifties, when I'd been in my twenties, I think I'd have been completely crushed, you know? Uh, And, I think that um, you know. I I, I think it'd be very bad advice to say to everybody, "Wait till you're 55 before you do much in public." I think that that's that's probably not a a very good bit of universal advice. But for me, it gave me a resilience that I think I wouldn't have had um, before. You know, and I remember when I had some really, really bad stuff on. Twitter, you know, the very mm. beginning of tw- of Twitter trolling and people kind of, you know, saying things like, you know, uh, you, we're going to blow your house up at 9.58 tomorrow, that kind of stuff. Uh, uh, you know, I, I think that's always quite shocking when that happens.
2: Very, but, very p- specific timings. You it? know, that
0: kind of, because, <laughs> you know, it's meant to, it's meant to frighten you. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, I, I kind of also knew, and I talked to my children about it, um I, I knew this wasn't gonna happen, you know, um, at a certain level intellectually, I knew that. And my daughter said to me, Look, you know, uh you know, I'm glad that you're taking it that way, but you know, there would be millions of women in this country, largely ones that are younger and less confident than you, that would be absolutely devastated. You know, they, they would, you know, they would take cover. Um mm and you know so just remember she said you know that you know you're slightly you're made uncomfortable by it you know you're 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 slightly destabilized but your reaction you know you have a privilege uh, you know partly from age and toughness not to be ruined by that kind of thing there are other people who would never walk out
2: of their door again
0: you know and i thought she had a good point
2: that's, that's an absolute good point. It's actually my next question. So well done, your daughter. Um, so um, I suppose, um, I don't know if, well, I'm sure you have. Um, we've, as teachers, we've had a lot of um, TikTok problems. Um, and obviously, teachers have been subjected to, to quite a lot of, you know, horrible things going, going through that media and that platform. And what, what my advice would be, first of all, to the teachers from you, but also, like, what would your advice be to the students around social media?
0: I think it's very difficult, naturally. And I think that,
2: uh, again, it's another
0: case where I don't think one size fits all. I remember that, you know, when I, you know, going back to sort of the occasions I was speaking about... um, my first, the, the, in, you know, my first engagement, and mostly I see it on Twitter. I'm, I'm a bit too old for TikTok. Um, oh,
2: I haven't I don't, I don't got it either. Don't worry. Yeah, right. <laughs> I
0: know that that's where I should be, but I think <laughs> let's yeah, all stay away from that. one, one platform is enough. <laughs> um, but I think that there, there was a kind of tendency for people to say, "Look, there is an obvious solution here. You know, that if somebody starts." Uh, being abusive or nasty or threatening, uh, you block them. You you don't reply. You block them. Don't give them the oxygen of publicity, and you know, move on. And to start with, I did that, and I I feel I feel fairly convinced that for some people that's the right thing to do. You know, and I would never um, I would never say that you know anybody shouldn't do that. If that's what they feel. If that's how they handle this, that's what they must do. Uh, I started to feel kind of, kind of uncomfortable about it because I thought, look, that's just leaving, that's leaving them to say what they want, and I just can't hear it. That's all, and I'm not replying. And there's, you know, if people, if I go into the pub late at night, and people start saying some of those kind of things, I'd say, excuse me, you know. What are saying about me you know i'd I'd respond I would you know i'd I'd object i would I would say that's not true and I kind of felt that i I couldn't live with myself if I didn't politely respond to these people you know I thought otherwise that um you know what I was doing really was you know leaving the bullies in charge of the playground you know that um, you know the, the nice people who got threatened uh, blocked and moved on, and that left um, the bullies saying the same thing. So I started to, and I still largely do this—not universally, but you know, uh, replying, being polite, and saying, you know, I'm, you know, I'm terribly sorry. I didn't actually say that. If you go back and look, I didn't say that. Now, it takes a lot of energy. It takes quite a lot of bravery. And, I, you know, I, as I say, I don't think one size fits all. I think that uh, over the years, I suppose, in doing that, I've come to see that of the people who are very nasty on social media, I think there are some who are very nasty. I think there are also some who are probably a bit disinhibited. They probably had a bit too much to drink. Um, they're a bit angry, a bit lonely, a bit sad. And some of the people to whom I've replied like that have actually been um, actually very nice, you know. They mm-hmm. said, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I shouldn't have said that. And I couldn't possibly claim that that was the majority. But it was it's been a significant minority and it's been quite reassuring about humanity that, you know, we're never going to turn social media into a universally nice place. You know, and we actually wouldn't, I think, want to have a world where nobody was ever rude to each other. You know, Um, that would be a bit dehumanizing. But it's, it is kind of, it's reassuring to have people say, oh God, yes, I did sound off, I'm terribly sorry. You know? And uh, so I think I shall go to my grave, you know. Um, as long as I shall, whether Twitter or I last longer, we don't know. But um, uh, you know, going on saying, you know, excuse me, that wasn't quite what I said. You know, would you like to talk about this? I th-
2: yeah, I think it's. Um, I think for us as teachers, it's a bit like. Instead of protect your daughters, educate your, shun- your sons. You know, like let's let's get it right with with the teenagers. Let's get it right with the younger yeah, generation, yes. and perhaps one day we won't be in this position. Yes, no, even though no, it probably no. will be. Well, uh, type.
0: I mean, I also think that you know, although it kind of seems like social media has been going on for a very long time, it hasn't really. And we, you know, I think that people are still learning about how to internalise its rules and conventions. And, you know, you know may, maybe I mean, if if you're optimistic in 20 years' time, um, if Twitter still survives or TikTok or whatever, um, you know, it may be that we'll look back to this time and just think, God, we just, you know, we were all over the place then. But, you know, we've got it righter since. You know, and I think, you know, I, you know, I'd like to think that we we worked – um, on g- getting the way we spoke to each other on social media better, rather than simply put our hands up in horror about it.
2: Exactly, um, and I think for for our listeners who have had an experience on Twitter or have had an experience on another sort of social media, it's just it it's so good to hear some of some of your experiences and advice with that because because that that that's the reality of of life at the moment and. Yeah. So yeah. thank you so
0: much for, for I talking us. And I, I also think that it is hurtful, you know. I mean, mm. and I, you know, I don't in any way mean to sound as if I'm not in any way upset by it. I mean, I think that um, you, I, I think a kind of big Twitter pile-in sort of me makes you feel as if you've been pummeled. You know, you know, yeah. <laughs> somehow it's a, it's like a kind of physical assault. It feels. That, and, and of course, unless you're very careful, you lose the ability to respond to it um, calmly, you know. Uh, and you know, I, I think now I do have a very, very, very strong rule, which I mostly keep to, mostly, which <laughs> is never tweet when angry. You know, if you think I'm angry, just turn the phone off, you know.
2: Well, that's that's why you're, we're a fan of you at Teachers Talk Radio, Mary. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you, Libby. <laughs> not a problem. So we had a question a while back, and um, so I'm, I'm going to go go to the question. Um, it's by it's by letters. It's not by a name. So if if you put your name in the text, I can say your name. So this is this is my um, me me reading on on the cuff here. So please correct me with some of this language. So he or she has said, "I've known you for the classics." As it's known, and always wondered if other civilizations fascinated you as much. Well, did get answered partly with your cake tales, yes. Egypt. Um, yes. What about Indology? Don't yeah. find much work on ancient India except yeah. comparative literature between Sanskrit and European languages.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yes, there's people. People in my department work on um, Sanskrit and and uh, other languages and their relationship to um, European languages. So, so I, I come into that a little. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that changing university curriculums uh, uh, is is doing right now is that it is expanding our sense of what. Um, what cultures, what civilizations, what parts of the world we want to teach, and I, I, I think that um, you know, I I, I I can wax lyrical about the importance of understanding the civilizations of Greece and Rome, but I can also say that you don't really understand those civilizations properly unless you look at the neighbours. You know, you know is you, know, you look at You've talked about Egypt, but you look at Syria. You look at um, uh, ancient Afghanistan. Uh, Rome was connected with India, uh, and you start to see that that actually there is for kids and students. There's a world out there of different cultures that, um, that you know. I hope that we explore more, and you know that uh, you know. I'm a great advocate of of studying and teaching and talking about um, the ancient Greeks and Romans, but they're only two civilizations amongst many in the world. I mean, one of the things I did recently was uh, I went to Plymouth where there's an extraordinary exhibition of um, both modern and historical indigenous uh, Australian art. You Know there is a culture there that you know really is arresting, challenging, absolutely fascinating. And you know, I, I want to uphold you know the study of Latin and Greek and study of the ancient Greeks and Romans, you know, for as long as I'm alive, but um, but uh, we mustn't forget. That they're not the only they're not the only things worth studying. And, you know, in a way they've been, uh, dare I say it, over dominant in in what we teach and, and where we put our resources, actually.
2: Thank you, I hope that answered your question. Um, so uh, we've had another text in as well, some um, niece So what is your advice for women who have children and want careers? And then she also says, I am also interested in your thoughts on how women who don't have or want children and how they are treated in the workplace. Mm. I think,
0: you know, it's things on kids, on, on how you manage kids first. I do think things got better since I did it um, when there was very limited um, nursery facilities effectively, um, you, you know, my husband and I, we, you know, we had to pay a home child carer because it was, you know, you, you couldn't find a nursery place mm. and that is different now. And workplaces and certainly the University of Cambridge thinks it has some kind of responsibility to to provide um childcare. I think it's about the hardest thing that you can possibly do.
2: Yeah.
0: I mean, I know, expensive I re- as well, childcare. It is, I mean, I just remember um, you know, I spent basically all my take home pay in childcare. And, you know, you can see thinking you could understand people thinking, why do this? You know? Um I stuck at it because I knew that I could not get my job back. You know, mm. That I had a job that I I, re- I mean that I really liked, uh, and that I couldn't give it up and find a similar one. I think it's I think it is better now, but I think that the the sheer physical and emotional energy of managing a career and kids you know is i mean it's it's crippling for a bit now i think that i I, in retrospect i have no regrets you know because um uh you know i i I would have been an extremely poor stay at home mum. um I would have got extremely frustrated and I'd have taken it out on the kids and, yeah. and you know family breakdown would have ensued. I and, think
2: yeah you need need work for you don't you that's that's you know, why I it's see how I got it. To work. It's
0: mm. got to, you know if you are a better I mean I I I've, I hope this isn't too self-serving but I think I would say you are a better parent if you are a Satis. If you are a stimulated and satisfied parent,
1: yeah?
0: now there are many ways of being a stimulated and satisfied parent. It isn't all doing um, the kind of job that I do, whatever. But you know, you you serve your kids best if you're happy, you know, mm. and uh, and in a sense not frustrated the whole time. I think it's you know it's very hard the other way round, and I think there's that. Um, you know, I live in a. I still live in a university where many of the most successful women have no children, um, and that is changing. But you know, there is it the kind of overcommitment that um, that university jobs tend to. To demand um, means that those without children, those the, the women at the top are often women without children. Um, now I think that there's a, a there's a kind of issue there uh, about what what we think a woman's career should be. You
2: know, Mar- Margaret of had two children. Yes, she did. Um, Theresa May, the the May had none. Yeah. Yes. And it's, She's still the only female um, Prime Minister we've had, though, isn't she? So. Yeah. <laughs> well,
0: May. May, don't forget May. Oh, come on. Um, <laughs> yes, do. um, you know, and I think, well, you look, you know, obviously the women in the House of Commons, uh, they've been very vocal about this. Um, uh, and also they're very much in the public eye. Uh, and I think, have a, have a job of, of extraordinary stress uh, and difficult hours, and God knows how they cope, frankly. But I think that we, you know, we judge women very unfairly, don't we? We judge them unfairly. If they've got kids, we treat them unfairly. If they haven't got kids, um, and there is a tremendous tendency to kind of blame women for their own misfortunes. I think, or, you know, take it out on them to say, oh, well, she's done well, but no children, you know, um, not a proper woman. I think hmm. it's very hard. Uh, and I think, you know, we, we still haven't got that right.
2: No. And I think we, we started the conversation by sort of alluding to that as well. So we've, we've come a very long way from when your mum was the head of the primary school um, yeah. to where we are today, but we're still, we're still not there yet. No, you know, and she, you know, I, I, I often think. Well,
0: I, know sometimes feel depressed about that. I then think that my mum was born before women had the vote in this country. Wow! Yeah, and you know, only just, but it was, and, um, you know, she lived to see Margaret Thatcher as prime minister. Now she hated Margaret Thatcher, um, but she, she realised that that things had changed, you know. Uh, And however much she disliked Thatcher, uh, she saw that it was a change for women that Thatcher should become prime minister. And you know, I I feel very torn here between um, between feeling that we should be celebrating how far things have come you know when I was when I was an undergraduate in Cambridge 12% of the undergraduates were female it's so now more or less 50 you know? you know things things have really changed but they damn well haven't changed enough you know um, I think
2: I think that's that's a really a really important point, point to highlight is that we absolutely need to celebrate how far we've come and um and that's that's the point, isn't it, is that it's only going to get better. Um, so we've just had I, I hope so. I hope yes, so. Yes, I hope so. Um, not detract. This is um, uh, somebody just texted in and said this, not detracting from the fact that there have been great inequality up to and including the present, but would say that it's difficult for parents when speaking in regards to career versus children. Um, and he's, um, he yeah. says, obviously, a massive part of the discussion, just highlighting there are lots of areas um Yep. its parents and, and absolutely. Yep. Yes, absolutely. 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 Um, so, what we're going to do is we're going to go to one more advert break and then when we come back, we've probably got time just for a few more questions um, before obviously the show closes. So, you can have that Great. second glass of water. Thank you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Need support with your phonics teaching? Did you know Oxford University Press now has three DFE validated programs to help you? Read, Write, Ink Phonics. visit oxfordprimary.com forward slash phonics.
2: And fantastic to hear from our sponsors um, once more. So we're just coming um, into the last 10 minutes of the show, really, with the absolute wonderful uh, Mary Beard, um, completely captivated myself this evening. And I'm sure many of you who are listening live agree. Um, I suppose... um, Hello, Mary. Nice to see you again. Hello. (laughs) Um, I suppose... um, Uh, a question that I have um, for you next is how have some of your topics you write about changed since you began? And I think has the pandemic changed things for you? Um, Have you um, sort of What's the relationship like? I'm. I'm. There was sorry. I'm not making much sense at the end. Um, there was a quote that I picked up from one of your articles where you said that history changes when the present forces us to talk different questions <laughs> yes, of the yes, past. So, yes. um, what's what what what's happened because of the pandemic with you? Well, I think that
0: I, I want to uh, let me give you a big answer and then close in on the pandemic. I mean, I think that you know. The way that the subjects that I've studied and write about um, uh, have changed over my, over my career is something which you know, <laughs> students sort of look blank when I say, you know, that um, you know, when, I was, uh, when I was a student, that studying the ancient world was largely, not entirely, but largely studying uh, rich men in the ancient world. And the way that, that that has opened up over the last 50 years has been you know tremendous and exciting and you know, f- feminism was directly responsible for bringing women into the curriculum um, uh, and uh, we look at different social groups there's much more uh, concentration for example on enslaved people on the poor um, and it's a kind of it's much wider, a a much wider set of things that we're interested in which has been you know driven by you know broad not not very specific but very broad political changes i think the pandemic is interesting and i think it's a bit it's a bit too early to say but i I think that it mean it in, in very specific terms, you know, it has focused people's attention on death and disease and plague and contagion uh, in the ancient world um, and to see it much more clearly. I mean, I mentioned a bit ago that, you know, here we've got the Iliad, first work of Western literature. And what does it start with? A plague, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of the the major um, uh, uh, major works of both Roman and Greek literature, we also focus on pandemic. I mean, Thucydides' great history of the Peloponnesian War. What happens at the very beginning of it? A plague in Athens. Sophocles' great play, Oedipus the King. What is afflicting the state of Thebes? In that, a plague. And so it is a way that, that both for, for me and also for the students that I teach, you know, it, this makes us reflect on not just the science of play, though it does that, I think, but also to how people talk about play, how they culturally explain it, what the consequences are, um you know we've looked you know with the students here very interestingly at the idea of you know who do we blame for a you know what who do we blame religiously or who do we blame politically whose fault is a pandemic and so you you find that you are really engaging quite closely and with uh the the changes in the modern world making you look at the history differently
2: Amazing. Um, So I suppose we wouldn't be a teacher's talk radio if we didn't ask you this. So do you have a favourite teacher at school or a favourite sort of memory that you'd like to share with us? (laughs) Well,
0: I went to a very academic girls school. It's a girls direct grant school. They don't exist any longer. Um, And I had one. um, There were a lot of amazing women, actually. And I I think that. the teachers at my school, uh, certainly kind of, they, they, they made me have no doubt that women ought to be able to do what, what any man could do if they wanted to. Right. I, mm-hmm. so I, I, I thought that might be difficult. I thought I could see where the problems were, but I, but in a sense, my school had made it absolutely clear to me that, um, I should be able to fight on equal terms with guys. The irony then is that the teacher I remember most vividly is a man. Which <laughs> <laughs> is oh. ironic. He, uh, he was a guy who taught in a lot of local schools. Uh, a, a real old eccentric who would now not be probably allowed anywhere near. Oh, we love a <laughs> maverick, really. You know, yeah. that's right. And he... Um, he taught us English in the sixth form, and um, you know, which was kind of about the, apart from uh, Latin, Greek, ancient history, and a bit of Italian. He also taught Italian. Was one was uh, w- one thing that kind of got a, half an hour a week, and uh, you can see this is you know this is back in the sixties, early seventies, and he made us learn reams and reams and reams of poetry off by heart. And then he made us um, stand up in the middle of the class on a chair and recite it, right, from memory.
2: Like the Dead Poet Society.
0: Like the Dead Poet Society, <laughs> it was. And somehow, yeah, uh, he was kind of charismatic because he was a maverick and because he was eccentric. But the poems that he made me learn have stayed with me forever, you know? And I think it's... Um, it is, uh, it is because of the poems that he made me learn that I remember him, you know. And, you know, it, it was, it was he used to actually occasionally to bribe us. You I remember that you got 50p if you learnt, um, Eliot's The Love Song of you J. Alfred, imagine doing that now. You, guys, yeah. you, can't imagine, you, get, you get sacked, right? It
2: definitely
0: would. It was fifty p for the Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, uh, uh, and it was a fiver if you could learn um, the wreck of the Deutschland. of course, the wreck of the Deutschland was so long that no one ever did. Um, um, uh, but it was a, a kind of—we knew it was a joke. Uh, we knew he was, uh, you know, that he was invested in us. I and, mean, you know, I'm afraid it is. It's terribly old fashioned. You know, it is terribly dead poet society. Um, but it, it, you know, I can still sit here and say, you know, I grow old, I grow old, I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. And that's been with me for 50 years.
2: There's there's a school, a uh, quite famous school, um, called Michaela School, and they, they're they quite famous because they get their students to recite poetry and learn poetry in the corridors mm. and in the restaurants. Um, so there's obviously a yeah. power to it, isn't there?
0: Yes. And I'm not sure. I mean, it's very hard to know what I thought at the time. I mean, mm. he was, you know, he, he was so kind of charismatic um, and old and odd and eccentric that he kind of carried us. But you know, it's given me a kind of, it's given me a library in my head. Amazing.
2: Maybe, maybe, maybe us, us teachers should uh, st- go into school tomorrow and start um, making <laughs> just write poetry, and see, <laughs> see what happens. Um, so we just had a text in, and it says, "Well, your retirement gift of scholarship for students from different backgrounds really made me so happy. Though nothing can replace your dot 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 dot. Can't put that in words. Basically, your greatness and effort." Sorry, effect. But this is going to bring a lot of positive difference. Wished if your grants extended for Masters too.
0: Yeah, no, I think that is what I would very much like, you know, and we are hoping to raise really to be active, you know, in in raising money to help people coming into um, the humanities at different levels. And I think one of the, the really, really big places where we need more cash and is very important for diversity is masters level students where it's very, very hard to get funding. So I'm hoping we'll be able to do something about that.
2: Brilliant. Um, And Portionese texted in and said, thank you, Mary. I don't have children and it's good to be acknowledged. They, we are treated differently as are women with children.
0: Yes yes yeah
2: um I suppose my my final question to you is if you're allowed to be anyone else for the day who would it be and why <laughs> <laughs> you can't not have a question like that to end. <laughs> I don't know I, I mean I kind of sometimes
0: feel that you know I, I'd like to be education secretary for the day and write some of the wrongs that have been done you know or you know be prime minister for the day <laughs> I, I'd
2: love that I think you'd be brilliant
0: <laughs> But only for the day, only for oh, the yeah. day. Oh yeah,
2: it's it's like um, what grandchildren, um, my my parents say about my children. It's like, oh, they're brilliant for the day, but have that's them
0: right. Back. Hand yeah. them back, hand them back. Yes.
2: <laughs> oh, so has said, what would you change, Mary?
0: Oh, God! In the world,
2: in oh, the world. Oh, Let's go in the world. Yes, I mean, oh. we've got we've got three minutes.
0: Oh God! I mean, you know, I I just. You know, I, I was brought up a very sort of old-fashioned socialist, and I kind of still think that the kind of money that some people make is just not right. You know, I mean, some of them are very nice. I don't they're saying they're bad people necessarily, but you know, I'd want a bit of you know income equality if I could. Mm.
2: And if you, if you, I don't know if you go go for a walk down Notting Hill where half the houses are empty because um, yeah. they're like the third homes and you think, righty. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> you know, I just
0: think it's just not, you know, there. you walk around and there are some things which are so, so not fair, you know,
2: yeah. that you,
0: you want to change it.
2: Um, And Sophia said, education secretary as well, please. <laughs> might as well throw that one in for a day as well. You can have a week. <laughs>
0: Yes, have a week. Yes, I'm a, yes, yes, go around and do a few jobs. You know, and I think I would, I would get a little bit more classics back into schools. I know yep. that's, I know that's partial, and I know that it's, you know, it's my own passion. Um, uh, and I know, you know, I know we need more apprenticeships and BTEC and all the rest. I know that, but I'd still put a bit of classics back.
2: Well, there's, there's lots of people who are, who are also. Um, flying that flag as well i know that christine council and steve Masters. yes that's important. right yeah no, that's right so so, uh,
0: so let's so let's good. hope
2: um well i suppose th- this is the end of the show really so thank you so much well, for coming on with me
0: great thank you thank you and i'd just like to say to everybody listening because you you know you are keen teachers listening that if you've got any kids who are interested in the ancient world but don't have latin or greek as languages, don't forget that they can do it at university. You know, every university in the country will take them to do classics.
2: Yeah. I, I didn't, I, I got a D in my French. Oh, no, in fact, I got an E. Um, <laughs> I always said it was an excellent uh, grade to my mother, but I, I studied classics. They didn't even That's didn't right. mind about it.
0: You know? So don't, you know, d- don't let them be put off because because they don't think they've got, you know, because they haven't been to, uh, you know, because they haven't got languages, you know, and they've probably been to a school that, that can't or doesn't teach them. So. Exactly.
2: Um, so thank you so much. Honestly, it's been it's, you've, you've spoken for for an hour and a half, oh, you've God. done incredibly well. No, done well. It's been it's been absolutely brilliant, and uh, time has well, really, definitely gone very quickly. Really
0: nice, really nice to speak to you all. You know, and uh, you know, it's great radio station. Well done. Hey. <laughs>
2: you you plugging us that would be great.
0: <laughs> thank you very well, much, have, I mean, a, thank-
2: have a great week.
0: Thank you to everybody listening. Thank you.
2: Brilliant. Thank you.
0: Have a nice evening thank as well. Thank
2: you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Oh, what what a fantastic guest, Um, superb energy throughout the whole thing. You can absolutely imagine how wonderful her lectures um, would be as well. And some incredible, great advice and a huge celebration of classics, I think. Um, Curriculum, career prospects. um, We spoke about Twitter and she opened up to us about how she deals with them um you know there's there's so much to talk about within an hour and a half and it went so quickly and it absolutely was a complete pleasure to host Mary so thank you so much for listening Um, so next week I'm going to be back completely uh, not talk about classics next week Um, even though I don't know how I'm not going to talk about classics after that one Um, I've got an ex-HMI Offset Inspector Adrian Lyons and we're going to talk through the quality assurance within schools Um, but I've also got Dan White who's deputy head teacher in Wales so we're going to be talking about the quality assurance system in Wales as well and doing a bit of a comparison there Um, so I hope you have an absolutely fantastic evening and an even better week I don't know how I'm gonna sleep after that I think I'm gonna to have to have a glass of wine um so have a wonderful evening everybody Bye bye